We give you all the glory in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. It is good to be here. I, believe it or not, still remember the seven messages that I brought here back in 2014 because it was the result of about a year of meditation on John 17. And so this congregation was my guinea pig in the first time of articulating what God had taught me during that time. And so it was very significant in the course of my life and understanding that passage. So it's good to be back. We lived here in Redlands for over nine years, and now we live in Rome, Georgia, so it's a little different. Uh, we're learning to sweat well, so uh, that's working well. So Father, as we dig into your word, uh, we are helpless, utterly helpless if we come just with our own intellect. And we thank you, we praise you, we celebrate you that you've given us your spirit so that he will teach us. And that is our desire this morning. And my prayer is, is that we will not look for some little nugget that we can share with someone else, but we would be receptive to your word and your spirit as he illuminates it to our hearts and minds so that we would live in obedience. Father, guide and direct us in these moments, for we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So, Mission Sunday. I've done a lot of these throughout the years. I was a globally clueless church planner in North Central Pennsylvania. Bill, in his introduction, said, you know, I was about mobilization my entire walk with Christ. No. No, 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 no. Came to Christ in 1971 during the height of the Jesus Movement as a college student. And it wasn't until in the early 80s my family, we moved to Pennsylvania. I mean, literally a globally clueless church planner then became a pastor of a church in north central Pennsylvania. But God began to take me on a journey through his scriptures starting in December of 1984. That lasted two years, and my eyes became open to this beautiful reality that the scriptures not about my personal salvation, about, but about God's redeeming the nations. And in the context of that truth, I discover the meaning of my personal salvation and how essential that is for all of us to understand. And how over 35 years, well, I'm going into 35 years of mobilization, I continually push back to the mission world and to the church world because normally when we come together and talk about missions, we will then try to help you to find your role in the context of missions. And it normally looks like this. Some of you are goers, some of you are senders, some of you are prayers, some of you are welcomers, some of you are mobilizers, and then there can be some other topics. So those are about the five basic topics. My issue with that is Christ focuses on disciple-making and we focus on peripheral elements that should be integrated in a disciple of Christ and make those nouns that become roles that we find our fulfillment in. And so the text that Bill asked me to focus on today is on Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And you all know what that is. We call it the Great Commission, correct? 
Interesting enough, about six years ago, George Barner did some research and asked people, asked people in the church, Christians, when you hear the Great Commission, what does it say to you? What verses and all those different things? And they discovered about 50% of the people had no clue what the Great Commission was in the context of the church. Now, I know that's not true in this church, but that's true in the general Christian population across the United States. So if you want to pull up your scriptures, I didn't get anything to the folks here in enough time that we're going to have anything on the screen. I've got, uh, not only do I pass, am I a discipleship pastor of a church in Rome, but I'm also with an organization called Triad, and our focus is on training, developing young men and women to go to the hardest places, hardest peoples on earth. And so those two ministries take a lot of time. Uh, do a lot of developing of curriculum, and so I apologize for not having anything up on the screen for you. So pull up the scripture, because we're going to be camping in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. So here's the text. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teaching, to, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, for lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, or always to the end of the age. And so that's the text we have. The first thing, we're going to go through this methodically, and we need to look at verse 18, because without verse 18, we cannot do 19 and 20. It's amazing how many times we'll miss 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Also, the great thing about that phrase is it's an indicative phrase that is connecting us to all that Matthew wrote about Jesus in his gospel. All authority. So you have the idea that this is the sovereign God of all creation, and he has been given all authority, and it is in the context of that authority that he tells us what we are to be about. But just so that we can develop and really understand the weight of what it means in the context of Matthew's gospel, let's take a moment and cruise through the gospel itself and look at this idea that Jesus is the king because Matthew was writing to a Jewish, Jewish audience, correct? Okay, uh, we'll get a little warmed up. I was a college professor and so questions normally were not rhetorical. I know that normally you think when someone's preaching those questions are rhetorical, but I get lonely. <laughs> so I need people to respond to me in the area of those questions. So as we look, Matthew, written to a Jewish audience, is trying to get this single point across that Jesus is the promised Messiah the promised anointed king that the Old Testament had talked about, that the Old Testament prophets were describing and declaring and, and prophetically teaching the people to be anxiously awaiting for the king to come. And so that's what he's trying to do in Matthew's gospel. So you can see in the first four chapters, in the fir first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy of the king. Second chapter of Matthew, you have the Magi coming to celebrate the birth of the king, which is, an, is a beautiful picture of them representing, glorifying this Jesus, giving him honor and glory, representing the nations that will be giving him honor and glory. 
as you've heard from that verse in Revelation, behold, I saw a great multitude which no one could count. Yes, we had lights come on. It's amazing. Um, I love it because now I can see you a little better. We can see in chapter 3 that the envoy of the king, John the Baptist, is now declaring repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. And then when we get in chapter 4 in Matthew, in verse 17, Jesus is proclaiming what seems to be the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the king himself appears. And then we see in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 4 that he went about in the synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that the king has come, the gospel that he is bringing his kingdom in to the context of the world in which we live in. We can continue on in Matthew. I'm not going to go through every chapter, but one of the beautiful things that Matthew begins to articulate within this gospel is that he has all authority over Satan and the demonic. He has authority over death. He has authority over sin. Yes, he's even known as the Lord of the Sabbath, so he has authority over the Sabbath. It's these continual comments and pictures and illustrations that Jesus has full authority. When we get to Matthew 17, we have this picture of the transcendence of Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration when he takes three of his disciples and they lay prostrate as Jesus is transformed into his glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. As we get to chapter 21, we see the celebration on Palm Sunday of the king coming into his city as he's running, riding upon a donkey, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. They're singing that the king has come. We see later on in chapter 21 that we see the wrath of the king as Jesus curses the fig tree. We can continue on throughout these passages, and we see in Matthew 24 the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 24, 14, it's this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in all the earth as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. It's even the mission of the king that he's commissioning even before we get to this commissioning statement in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is articulating here. We can see it in Matthew 27 when he's arrested and the Roman soldiers begin to mock the king as they put a crown of thorns, thorns on his head and a robe around him, mocking this king of the Jews. We see it as he comes to the cross, and there's a sign that says, King of the Jews, to so the crucifixion of our king. And then you begin to see the resurrection of our king. And we come to Matthew 28, in the context of that story of the resurrection in Matthew's gospel, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. We must understand that that phrase is a summary statement of the entire gospel of Matthew. And it is upon that sovereign authority of the living God and King, Jesus Christ, the anointed King, that he has given us his commissioning statement to his people, his subjects. And so it's fascinating to me that we treat it like the great suggestion. 
when you might find some time in your lives, why don't you make a disciple of one of the nations? Or why don't you uh, give a little pittance of what God has blessed you with towards that activity? Or maybe give some time, if you can find that time to give to your Lord and King in what he has called you to be about every single day of your lives. So if we run to verse 19 and begin to read what Christ is saying to us, apart from all the authorities have been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We are rushing too quickly to where we don't pause and allow the weight of that statement to settle on us and ask the Spirit of God to reveal how have we disobeyed that, how have we obeyed that, and realize if we have disobeyed that, our hope is only found in repentance and being restored in Christ. So it's the first step we always need to make in any sermon that we hear. Is the truth that I'm hearing a truth in the way I live? And if it's not, then you always know the first step of obedience. I have sinned against you. Father, forgive me. I turn from that so that I might live in the context of what your word says. And so the rest of the sermon is going to be looking at what his word tells us. As we get to 19, again, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. There are four verbs. Go, make, teach, Oops, baptize and teach. Those are the four words. If you grew up in the church in the 50s and 60s, you, it was communicated to you that the imperative verb was what? Go. But it's not written in the imperative. So the imperative is make disciples of all nations. That's the imperative here. The go, the baptizing, and the teach act as participles describing the main verb. So the main verb is making disciples of all nations. Now, interesting side note, the Greek word is just a single word, mafeteo, that we then translate make disciples. Literally, it should be go therefore discipling the nations, taking that into a verb. So the command is to make disciples. Now, when you hear the term disciple, do you think of position or process? So how many think of position? Okay, just a few. How many think of process? Oh, wow, that's the majority, because that's the way we normally use the word in the context of our Christian understanding Contemporary Christian understanding. But the interesting thing is, 269 times it's used as a noun. So it's used as a position. If we were going to put a contemporary label to disciple in the New Testament, used over 269 times, it would be Christian. See, if we think it's only a process 
then we don't understand what we're called to make. We just think of, okay, you became a Christian, now discipling is a process of maturing you. Instead of what Christ is calling us to do is not to make converts, but to make disciples. So we have to ask ourselves a number of questions, and I don't have time to go into it because I taught an entire college course on making disciples of all nations. So to summarize that in a 30-minute, 35-minute message would be ugly, so we won't do that. But let's just look at one particular element. Of the 269 times, and four times the verb is used, matheteo. So matheteis is the noun, matheteo is the verb. Only used four times. One of the times here in Matthew 28:19. So, of those 269 times the noun was used in four times, that would be 273 times. <laughs> Good, I got that math down. Without a calculator. I'm very pleased. We only have Jesus recorded using it 10 times, which I find fascinating. So the Holy Spirit only moves in the heart of Matthew, Luke, and John to identify those 10 times that Jesus used it. Now, I would argue Jesus probably used it thousands of times with his disciples, but the Holy Spirit only led the biblical writers to record 10 times that he uses it. Of those 10 times, four are very specific on who a disciple is. That would be four. <laughs> I'm putting my whole hand out there. It must be the arthritis in the thumb. Yes, getting old. So move. Um, so four times. So listen to the four times. You would find them in Luke 14 and John 8. In Luke 14, there are going to be three times. One in verse 26. I'm sure one of your favorite verses. Unless you hate your mother and your father, your wife and your children, your sister and your brother, and your wife and your children, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Huh? Wait, you told us to love one another. What do you mean hate? If I was going to summarize what Jesus is communicating there, is you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, might, with all your soul. See, he is our first and only love. The way we love those categorized in Luke 14, 26, is we love them by faith through Christ, according to Paul's expression in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So you can't be his disciple if you have competing loves for him. 2, 27, verse 27, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Boy, this is a little harsher than ask Jesus into your life, pray that he come into your heart, all these different things. Jesus, you're bringing in things that we normally don't communicate to people when we're trying to have them make a commitment to you because they probably wouldn't want to commit their lives to you if we asked them to do those things. We do find ourselves in a dilemma because we have softened the words of Jesus. But if the command of Christ is to make disciples, then we better pay attention to how Christ describes a disciple. 
So in other words, die to self. Die to all your ambitions, all your goals, all your dreams, everything. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So unless we die to self, as we come to Christ, we cannot be his disciple according to Christ. And then in verse 33, after two illustrations about a tower and a king going to war, Jesus says in verse 33, unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I am not, listen, if, I, if it was up to me, I would have softened it. I would have made it a little easier for you. But this is what Jesus says. And if we're supposed to make disciples, we should pay attention to how Jesus told us who a disciple is. And I would summarize the whole idea of renounce everything is when you came to Christ, you gave up ownership of everything to him. You own nothing. You didn't drive in anything you own. You're not wearing anything you own. There's nothing in the bank account that you own. You are a steward of his resources for his purpose. Unless you renounce everything, you cannot be his disciple. That's what Jesus says. That means that he has called all of us in the room who are followers of Christ that we are to be about making disciples. Not as we might interpret it in the context of our culture, but as Christ interprets it in the context of his word. We must yield to our king. The other thing that we need to understand about that phrase, remember it's the imperative, is make disciples, matheteo, is a transitive verb. <laughs> you thought, well, we have a college professor, he's going to talk about verbs, he's going to talk about all these different things. But a transitive verb must connect with an object. So if I were up here saying the commissioning of Christ in Matthew's gospel is to make disciples, I would be wrong because I'm not connecting it with the object that Jesus connects it to. The imperative in the Greek syntax must include every single word. Make disciples of all nations. Ethne, where we get our word, you know, ethnic, people groups. And so, we don't have a privilege in this church just to make disciples so that people would be personally enriched in their walk with Christ. No, we are responsible of making disciples of all nations, which means as we make disciples in this church or any church throughout the world, we are making disciple makers of the nations. That's our goal. You read most any contemporary book on discipleship, and here would be the goal that you would find, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, that is a goal of disciple-making, but if we only articulate it in that manner, we are losing sight of make disciples of all nations. Because if it's just about me being conformed in my walk with Christ, then I'm not going to see it in a global context. I would vehemently argue scripturally that the goal of disciple-making 
is that we are developing a fully engaged disciple of Jesus. And here are the three points that I believe should be part of that goal. One, that we be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8, 29, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Two, that would be immersed in his word because I forgot to tell you this one. There's another one, John. You're probably going, Where, what happened to the John thing? John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you keep my word, if you walk in my word, if you saturate yourself in my word. And so we have to include that as a goal of disciple-making. So, to develop fully engaged disciples of Christ who are being conformed to the image of his Son, immersed in his word, and strategically, intentionally engaged in his mission of making disciples of all nations, both locally and globally, simultaneously. That was a long one. Not very succinct and doesn't make a really good bullet point, does it? But that's what it's talking about. So that's our goal in disciple-making. And then, a few years ago, I sent out a text to a lot of friends of mine around the world, and I could give you their, some of their names, and you would know them, so I'm not going to give you some of their names. And I asked this question, what is the chief end of disciple-making? No one thought through the question because no one identified how the question was worded. Let me see if you can capture the way I worded it. What's the chief end of man? Not rhetorical. You got it. Westminster Shorter Catechism. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I would argue the chief end of disciple making from scripture is that the nations might glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we are doing a model of discipleship, a program of discipleship in, his church, in our churches that do not connect with the chief end that Christ has given us for making disciples, we're living, living in disobedience to our God and King. This is about that the nations might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I'm sure you are very up-to-date with different things, but there's still about two billion people in the world today who have never even heard the name of Jesus. So how in the world are they going to be discipled? And I could go on and on with facts and figures, but I need to move on with dissecting this portion of Scripture. So the imperative to make disciples of all nations the three verbs, let's go over those real quick. The, next, the first one is the go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So what has happened since the 50s and 60s, and even in the 70s when we were making go the imperative, when we discovered that, wait, we were wrong, the imperative is make disciples of all nations, then what we did is communicated go in a very lazy manner. We communicated this way, as you go through life, now think about how most of us would, uh, would interpret that. Oh, okay, so whenever it fits into my schedule, I'll make a disciple or two. 
But unfortunately, and I'm going to throw, I'm going to just going to throw it up, and then I'll simplify it. Whenever you have a verb that precedes the imperative verb, that verb takes the imperatival force of the main verb. So you cannot relegate it to, eh, just as you kind of nonchalantly move through life, because even though it's not written in the imperative form, it carries the imperative weight of the verb that precedes it. You with me? No. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. In other words, let's see if I can do it simpler. <laughs> Might not be able to do that. <sighs> In other words, even though go is not written in the imperative, but make disciples of all nations is the imperative, the force of the imperative statement connects the going. Does that help? Oh, good. Because <laughs> I didn't have much after that one. Unless I took another 10 minutes and just pretended like I was trying to teach you something. In other words, go therefore means we are to walk with Christ daily, fully engaged in his commissioning. It's not haphazard. It's intentional. We wake up every morning saying, Holy Spirit, guide and direct me and how I might fulfill making disciples of all nations today, whether it's with my children, maybe it's with my grandchildren, maybe it's with coworkers I have at work and those neighbors that I have around me that don't know you. How can I be developing disciples who are disciple makers of the nations? Because that's the goal. And I believe in pre-conversion disciple making. I've got a dentist in Rome, Georgia, who I finally got someone to really, I, I've been asking people to commit to the process of, of pre-conversion discipleship, and no one would take me up on it, and finally this dentist did, and I wish I had my phone with you because I could read you a text that he sent me on Tuesday saying, I'm amazing how God is opening up his word to these men who don't know him pre-conversion disciple-making. We take them through a journey of discovering who Jesus is through the Word. Very simple. As the Word begins to work and the Holy Spirit begins to use that Word to bring them to conversion, pre-conversion disciple-making. And then when they commit their lives to Christ, you move from discipling people towards Christ to discipling people in Christ. And again, your goal is, as I said, fully engaged disciples of Christ who are conformed to the image of his son, who are immersed in his word, and are, are fully engaged in making disciples of all nations, both locally to the ends of the earth. So the go. I have some other ideas about go, but I don't have time to go into it. I do think the going... We need to get out of this uh, idea that I deserve to call a place on this globe home. I would argue when you committed your lives to Christ, you became a nomad for Jesus. That when he said go, you went. When he said stay, you stay. When he said go again, you went. And when he said stay, you stay. About a year and a half ago, God told my, Elaine and I to leave Redlands and go to Rome, Georgia. Who does that? 
I left, we left eight grandchildren two doors down from us. And 12 other grandchildren that live in the Southern California area. That's 20 for those of you that are counting. And the seven children that we raised that live in Southern California. Who does that at our age? But two years before that, I said, Elaine, are we making decisions based on our grandchildren instead of based on God's direction in our lives until we meet him face to face at death? I believe the go means that we live strategically as the Spirit of God leads us. And that doesn't mean you're all going someplace, but it does mean you hold wherever you are loosely because you are a sojourner, an ambassador, an alien, and a... There's something there, and I went in the wrong order. But in other words, we live this loosely because we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Last two verbs. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I kind of got ahead of myself, but that relates to evangelism, doesn't it? People get baptized after they've made a commitment to Christ. They make a commitment to Christ because we have shared the gospel with them to where they commit their lives to Christ and are baptized. In other words, this is the movement of bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ that we in our culture call evangelism. I would call it disciple-making. And because we have evangelism and disciple-making, what has happened is we've created a false dichotomy between the two. Uh, for 14 and a half years, I was in the denominational offices of my denomination. And I couldn't believe all the time there were these arguments about, I do evangelism, I do discipleship, as though there were options. No, we make disciples, and part of making disciples is bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. But we just don't leave them there and then move on. It's a continual relational thing. So the idea of baptizing is a part of this disciple-making. And then finally, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. Now, some of your translations will say, to obey all the things that I commanded you. The, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word that is used for keep there means to guard, to set your eyes upon. And so it's this idea of all that Christ, all that I, you know, every time you hear someone unpack the word of God for you, or you're in a Bible study, our responsibility is then to leave that and get alone with God going, okay, Father, how am I supposed to integrate these truths within my walk with you, within my obedience to you, everything else? We've got to get out of this Western context of thinking that someone's standing on stage Preaching is a form of Christian entertainment. This is not Christian entertainment. This is the church coming together to find out how we continue to walk in obedience to our living God and King, Jesus Christ, and encourage each other in that as you practice the one another's of Scripture. And I know it's some of your favorite one another's, teach one another, admonish one another, confess your faults to one another. You know, we like to love one another, serve one another, those type of things. It's all the one another's that we practice in here. And part of it is if there's someone else that you're not walking with in Christ and you just come here solo and you leave solo and there's no one that you're in community with as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to the teachings of Christ, then more than likely you're not growing in a way you need to grow in Christ because 
It takes a church. That interaction. And so, Jesus has given us his commissioning statement. Now, we call it the Great Commission. You'll notice I haven't used that word except in the introduction and such. I call it the commissioning statement found in Matthew's Gospel. Because I believe the Great Commission is four statements between his resurrection and ascension, not a single statement that editors a couple of hundred years ago determined to call it the Great One. The Great Commission is the collective whole of five statements that Jesus gives us. And let me give them to you in chronological order. First one, John 20, 21. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You've been sent in the way the Father sent the Son. Next one, chronologically, as we believe and try to decipher, is Mark 16, 15. Go into all the earth, go into all creation, and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Go into all the earth and proclaim the gospel to all creation. The next one is the Matthew. And we've already done that. The next one after that is Luke 24. 47 is really the crux of the focus. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in my name to all nations, and then the end shall come. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm starting in Jerusalem. I interfaced Matthew 24, 14 with that one. And then the final one is Acts 1, 8. And you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all the Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. Please do me one favor. Do not understand that sequentially and do not think Jerusalem represents your home. It doesn't. They were Galileans. So if Jesus wanted them to associate where he was telling them to go with home, he said, go back to your villages of Galilee and proclaim the gospel up there. No, he told them to wait in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was the most strategic thing to do. This is about strategy, not about home. And the most strategic place for the church to be birthed was Jerusalem. Because on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the nations were going to be there. And 3,000 of those Jews representing the different nations came to faith in Jesus Christ. As the 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon you and the church was birthed, began to speak the gospel in the language of the nations. The church was birthed in a global context. This thing that Christ has called us to do, this thing that you're talking about, in this Mission Sunday is not a program of the church. It is an attribute of God. It is the DNA of the church itself, and it is part of his calling in our lives, individually and as a body. We must not participate in a day like this and think we can opt out. The marching orders have been given. What will you do with them? If you have lived in disobedience for a while, I've already stated the first place to start is confession and repentance. And then share that with others that are in your sphere of intimacy, in the faith, and begin to walk with each other to become disciple-makers of the nations. Now, what that looks like, give me four hours.
I've identified at least 16 core competencies, but that's a whole nother day and time. So, Father, my prayer would be that this that you would assist this congregation in one um, wading through a lot of fast information. But Father, help us. I think the most important thing related to this commissioning statement is do we see it given to us by God himself? Or do we see it as a suggestion given by man that we can take under advisement and see if we want to be involved? If we declare ourselves Christians, or as the scriptures would say, disciples, it's already a given what we're supposed to do. I pray that Trinity would become a church where this was just not an activity that it participated in. But she would discover how it needs to be seamlessly integrated in the very fiber of all that she is. For I pray these things in Christ's name.